Well, hello there, and welcome to uh, the Deadly Analysis Podcast. Uh, today, we are going to, I think this is our that's our second zombie film. We've done Pontypool, so we're going to explore uh, a, a film called uh, The Train to Busan. And I, and I mean that literally, like we're just going to sit here and talk about like the only the train itself, like the mechanics of it, the load capacity, just literally the train to Busan. Like that's the only, that's why we're here tonight. Um, there is this other side story. Maybe I should talk about it. There's this other side story in the film uh, it, where basically the train to Busan follows a, a man named Suk Wu. Uh, I'm probably butchering that name, Suk Wu. Uh, he's a father who basically doesn't have much time for his daughter. Now, this isn't important as much as, as the train mechanics are, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to explain it. So he doesn't have much time for his daughter, Sue Ann, because he's essentially a, uh, a successful fund manager and you know you know those fund managers they don't have any times for their kids at all they, they just they ignore their kids entirely that's that's what they're good at fund managers um so together uh the father and daughter board uh, the ktx which is a fast train that takes them from seoul to busan and during their journey um they are say moderately inconvenienced by the zombie apocalypse um and while the ktx is shooting towards busan the passengers on board essentially uh, have to fight for their lives against the zombies. Uh, so that's what this film is about. So I am here tonight with Antonio, uh, Shayra, and Ben. Um, so let's talk about the train to Busan. Uh, not a train I want to be on, guys. I, I'm going to stick with Amtrak. There's poor quality of service on Amtrak, but you don't get eaten on it. So I'm good. I'm good. I'm good with Amtrak. Um, but I, I do want to ask, I want to start this by asking one question about like the zombie genre in general before we hop directly into the train to Busan. This is one of the more interesting questions to me within the world of horror, and I, I have to pick your brain on this. Um, I want to know what you guys think just the general fear of zombies is all about. Like what if you could peg in two minutes, three minutes, what you feel like our collective anxiety about zombies represents. I want to know what that is. And, and I want to tell you why. I, I remember very few things in college about like uh, my film classes. Like I took like a couple film classes. My degree's not in film. But one of the things I never forgot was I had a professor who was, he just was so adamant that zombie films reflect a kind of fear of automation. Like for like, um, for like white collar workers, that it's the fear of like always drudging along and never being able to end the work life or something. It was something like that. I'm probably butchering it. And that always, it always dawned on me as a very odd explanation, but it, it works on some level to me. So anyway, I, there's a lot of like different theories about why we have like a collective fascination or fear or anxiety about zombie films. Think of the bazillions of zombie stuff out now, right? Walking Dead, Santa Clarita Diet, there's billions of them. So I want to know this, but I want to clarify, I want to know what you guys think, but I want to clarify that I'm not asking like the historical perspective, like the sort of Haitian, and, and there's actually stuff before Haitian uh, voodoo stuff, but like that's the history of it. But why, why has there been a bridge between like, let's say the Haitian background, Creole, Louisiana background stuff to like this technological, you know, epidemiological potential reality of of the zombie apocalypse that there's something there there's some anxiety there that's being reflected what do you guys think that is my take on the zombie phenomenon is that it's kind of like the uncanny valley what it represents is um something that looks like a person but has been emptied out of everything that makes it a person and its only remaining drive is to consume that which makes us people, which in this case would be brains, right? Brains. brains. 
brains. There's a variety of horror tropes that sort of represent inversions or subversions of humanity. You know, like the vampiric trope would be sort of the other end of the spectrum where it looks like us, it acts like us, it passes for us, but it's actually still a predator. It's actually still not one of us. Um, and uh, but but ultimately, the zombie trope, I think, is simply the the fear of looking in the mirror and seeing something that looks like you, but actually doesn't doesn't have anything, any trait you recognize as human. And all it does is all it is, is it's hungry to make you like it, to empty you out of everything that makes you you. So for me, I think one of the things that I've always noticed in a lot of the, the I mean, maybe almost every zombie film, I'd be hard pressed to think of one that doesn't have some degree of this, but it's it's almost like a, a, in, in a an excuse for like some, uh, like a clean slate, like simplicity, like going going back to less stress, less work. Uh, the the person who has the 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 neck, you know, the tie and the suit becomes the hero instead of droning on mindlessly at work. You know what I mean? It's it's a, it's always an attempt at a clean slate. And I think no, uh, this is highlighted. I think the most in one of my favorite uh, films, Zombieland. Right. Um, and it's done on purpose. But I think if you look at all the ones that even Dawn of the Dead, uh, Night of the Living Dead, really almost all of them, there is a character who is unhappy or this, they're, they're, uh, there's something about life that's not that's just monotonous. And the zombie apocalypse, and this may just be something relevant to apocalypse stories, but particularly the zombie apocalypse, that guy gets a bat. And he puts spikes on the end of it. And he's now this new persona. It's like an extension of what you want to be almost, I've noticed. That's definitely a theme in a lot of zombie films. So I wonder if that plays a role in kind of the, it's almost like a, like a wish, like, a, like an anti-death, like a anti-death wish sort of thing. I don't know. Very, very strange. But I've noticed that that's something in all of the zombie films that I've seen as well. The remake of Day of the Dead hit that nail, haha, um, very specifically on the head when our protagonist is asked, what worry, uh, like, what are you? Why should we be following you? Why is your plan the best plan? And uh, his answer is, uh, I, I sell photocopiers. Before the apocalypse, I sell photocopiers. I, I think, and this is, I think most of what appeals to us, commercially at least, in the zombie genre is not the horror. Um, but exactly what you're describing, the fantasy of the clean slate, the fantasy of the reset, um, the fantasy of us as survivors empowered um, and empowered to act without consequence. Uh, I think uh, that there is there is the horror side of it as well. But um, but there are reasons why the zombie apocalypse genre outperforms everything else at the box office. Every other horror subgenre uh, sub is chasing after the table scraps left over from zombie movies. Um, and I think it is because it has that twin appeal of the apocalyptic fantasy in which what we do has no real consequences and we are liberated from the circumstances of our lives. Um, and the, the horror element um, and where there is a horror element, where we actually do engage the horror element, like uh, Zombieland is a great example, because you aren't horrified at any point in the course of that movie. It's fun. It's fun. 90% um, of the world's population is dead, walking around and trying to kill the remaining 10%, and it's fun. I would say that that's a more honest reflection of what most of us 
go to a zombie movie four is the fun. Um, uh, Train to Busan is a refreshing, uh, refe refreshing divergence from that in that uh, it more directly connects us to the horror rather than the power fantasy. I think you're totally right. Um, Train to Busan puts a real emphasis on uh, the humanity of the characters, but it really focuses on the tension in trying to survive. I mean, like you feel every bite, you see close-ups. It's, it's, you know, you turn the corner and you're gone. The, the scene in Train to Busan where they think they're safe and they get off the train and they start going into the station and they're going down the escalator and you hear rumblings and you start to see everything. I remember specifically in that scene, seeing that I was watching it on my projector, which is a mistake I will never make again. And just being absolutely like, that's the feeling I want in Walking Dead. And, and I got in maybe like the first season um, of, oh shit, turn the other way and run. And it was great to have that kind of visceral feeling in a zombie film, which I think is a testament to how much of the focus, maybe some of the other zombie films, have that kind of clean slate stuff be primary. Um, there's some of it in this, right? We have the the businessman who is clearly self-centered. Maybe we can get into some of the archetypes. There's a lot of archetypes in this film. But, you know, we have that in this film too. We have the businessman who um, has no time for his daughter and he's slowly turning that around and trying to do the right thing. And, and uh, you know, so there's a little bit of shifts in some of the characters here. Um, but it's not primary, I think, in the way that we would we would look at other films and say that that's that's a clear, obvious element to the appeal of going to see that film or that show. So um, on the issue of archetypes, one of the major criticisms of this movie that I've I've read is that the characters this is a weird I don't know if I like I have a weird like back and forth with this. The characters in this movie are fairly simple. Um, they're very archetypical, uh, archetypal. Uh, they're they're but they're very simple, right? Um, and they're they're almost classified by like professional level in terms of villainy, right? You have the evil CEO who's bad at the top of the food chain. He's the bad guy who sacrifices everyone first. And then like under him, you have our main character, Suk Wu, who's kind of a, a he's a fund manager. And he's 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 hungry, and he's uh, and he's a businessman who works too hard, and he's kind of a bad guy too. He tells his daughter only think about yourself, right? And and that will slowly change. But you know he's kind of like the next step down. And then you have the machismo working class guy who's who's more morally virtuous than the other two people that I've mentioned before. It's like the more you go down, the the almost the more virtuous you get. The, and then you have I think at the bottom, if maybe we want to talk about this guy, the uh, the homeless man who sort of like teaches us not to judge a book by its cover. And and uh, and even maybe even below him, Sue Ann, the youngest, who's everything she says is like morally virtuous. Why would I only think about myself? I want to go help that person. I want to do that. It's like the wisdom of of children. So everything's very archetypical, very simple. But I, I actually really liked it. I didn't see it as a fault in the film. What did you guys think? I actually have a theory on this. Um, I watched the movie Stagecoach last week. Uh, by John Ford. And I believe that Train to Busan is stagecoach with zombies. And hear me out on this. So you have a bunch of random, interesting, strange characters and archetypes. They're in a mode of transportation going from point A to point B. Um, and we are humanizing people and having their character built throughout the whole thing. So the criminal uh, becomes this uh, really loving person. Um, we have a pregnant woman um, that is struggling through this uh, this ride. And of course, in Stagecoach, it was Apache 
Indians that were going after them, not zombies. But, um, you know, it's it's a very similar story, very popular in Westerns, lots of action, lots of, uh, you know, special effects and everything that were used. Um, but it's a modern day version of that. And we've been continuously doing this. Even Snakes on the Plane could be considered <laughs> similar to that storyline. Um, and it has been in some of the suspenseful movies, like in um, Alfred Hitchcock's uh, The Lady Vanishes. They were on a train. This woman vanishes and they're trying to solve the mystery. There's all these different, very interesting characters that we're trying to learn about and understand and their character grows. So I feel like Train to Busan is a, a bunch of genres of movies put together and it somehow magically works and is somewhat refreshing. Um, even though it's a lot of the same stuff we've seen before, it's it's refreshing and it feels kind of new anyway. I think there's a pretty decent argument to make that uh, there's, a, there's a significant element of at least pseudo-Marxist class critique in this movie. Um, and that a fair amount of the movie's sort of sub- subtext leans kind of heavily on on how um apocalyptic horror is a class equalizing force you know the idea the idea that the movie repeatedly conveys this idea that who you who you were in the world before maybe this goes back into what uh ben was saying just a minute ago um who you were in the world before um the power relationships that you had in the world before are swept away by the arrival of the apocalypse right and so, you know, the person who was the COO before, he's now not defined as being a COO. He doesn't have access to that power. He's just a man. And so he, his only cap capacity is the interactions that he has with the people who are directly around him. And it's his, it's his personal uh, capacities and virtues that determine his fate in the new world, as opposed to his exalted status that he formerly possessed. Right. And you see this repeatedly. It's this, the COO uh, becomes, you know, this this venal, cowardly individual who literally throws people to the zombies in order to try and survive a little longer. And of course, it doesn't work out. The uh, control center for the train is always just completely useless. Uh, all, all centers of power and authority are, are depicted as basically less useful and less moral and less capable than than individuals in this particular movie than individuals responding on the ground this control center uh is completely useless the military and the favors that they call in to try and get past the military turn out to be completely useless um whereas the people who actually manage to do useful things are you know the homeless guy um the pregnant woman you know etc cetera, etc cetera. so i think that there's definitely an element of of leveling in this where you know it tries to say that uh who who you who you are in the real world you know in the world once we strip away all the pretensions of class consciousness is what you do in in your immediate relationships rather than who you've managed to become in terms of power structure. I agree 100% and mainly because one of the uh, stories, uh, the sub stories of Stagecoach was a prostitute who everyone in town was shunning. That's why she's on the Stagecoach to get away because they want her out of the town. She's a disgusting, despicable, horrible, evil thing. She needs to be out. But she's the one who ends up helping the pregnant lady. She's the one who ends up being a badass. She's the one that ends up doing all these amazing things. And um, it's it's like once you get into this vehicle, you you're now 
this is all there is. This is all the humanity we have. And you can almost, it's the start anew once again, <laughs> we were talking about that you get to start anew, but you can become something better. And a lot of those apocalypse types of stories do that. And it's kind of great. But I think um, Snowpiercer is a great example of what you were talking about with the, the class structure. But that was a very literal one, though. People in the back of the train were the extremely impoverished all the way to the front, which is the most rich. Um, but yeah, I, I do agree with you on that. Now, my understanding was if you were in this film and you actually took a sickle and a hammer and used those as weapons, you just become like a super saiyan in Train to Busan. Like you're super powerful, like way more powerful than everyone else. You assume all the power, like, of the populace that has been just diffused because of the apocalypse. I don't. I I heard that. I don't know if that's that's true. You don't get sent off to get educated. Yeah, exactly, exactly. We we may need to we may need to revisit this, but um, differing takes on collectivism is absolutely a theme that was in flashing neon for me throughout the course of this film. Um, but. Uh, <clears throat> One, one thing that jumps out at me that, that I enjoyed about this is the way in which it felt like the filmmakers were playing with some ambiguity regarding the class consciousness of some of these characters. Um, the fellow that we're talking about, uh, Dong Suk Ma, um, super big, you know, the, the badass. When we first meet him, he is wearing a couture jacket and a scarf, contrary to the weather. If this guy is a construction worker, he's a construction worker who spends a disproportionate amount of his paycheck on clothing. Um, and when he takes them off, because it's time to get shit done, um, he folds them carefully and drapes them on the seat as if expecting to come back to them. Um, our COO is the only character who identifies his position in class strata and does so stridently, urgently, and with a desperate expectation that that is going to translate into extra resources leveraged on his behalf for his benefit. But most of these people, we don't actually know where they sit on that ladder. Um, and the moment that the moment that we start to think that we do, there are those little moments from the filmmaker that I take as an intentional spiking of that wheel. They are intentionally screwing with um, the the market, uh, Marxist interpretation of class structure and moral structure in the course of the film, which I really enjoyed. Like. As far as I know, as a film watcher, big burly badass could have bought the COO four times over. We don't know. What we do know is that COO insisted on telling people at every opportunity where he sat in a perceived socioeconomic class structure and big burly badass didn't bother to tell us anything about his earning potential, about his socioeconomic standing, about his level of expectation of uh, privilege, um, if anything, rejection thereof. 
So I, I, uh, one of the things that I enjoyed about this movie is the ways in which they presented us with those archetypes, but kind of fucked with them. The only thing they could have done that would have made that better is if, like, the sister who, who ends up killing everyone in the train, all, like, the high-class people in the train, looks over and just says that she's a billionaire, that she actually wins. Like, she's the richest person on the train, and she just has the, fuck it, we're all going to die. Like, that would be great. So I, I have a note here. I may be the only one who, I, I may just edit this out. I may be the only one who noticed this. I had a weird moment in this film where... There And I don't know if this is a, a Korean thing. I'm, I'm too ignorant to understand if this is something that is from Korean movies or not. But there's um, I noticed a trend in this film whenever there was a zombie attack that was seen from the window, like an observer perspective. It's not in the uh, in the train, but when, for example, when they first go to the first stop and they just see all the carnage happening, there's a kind of piano music that plays that's not high notes, it's low notes. And it reminded me of the Parasite E video game from PlayStation. It actually, like, I literally thought of that game. And I was, and it's, I believe it's a Japanese game, so it's a little different. But I, re I remember going, this is like Parasite Eve. Like, it just had this weird, like, um, empathy moment where everyone's looking and seeing the carnage. And it just reminded me, it was just an odd music to use, I guess. Like hearing that as an American, it, it just, I would have never guessed that that's the sort of music I'd be listening to as I'm watching people get ripped open. But it worked and it reminded me of a video game. I, that's, I have no idea how to segue out of this, but I thought I'd mention that. It was very odd for me. The, you, the, the you thing see I've seen a lot of beauty in just looking out a window. I have to say that, Noah. I just, I'm just gonna say every time someone looks out a window in a movie, you point it out. Go ahead, Ben. Sorry. <laughs> no, uh, the, 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 thing, uh, the thing I'd say, Noah, is that the natural, the double feature pairing here is not World War Z or Day of the Dead. It's um, something like House of Flying Daggers. Mm. Um, we're in a different cinematic idiom. We're in an uh, we're in a cinematic idiom where sorrow is a note that is permissible to play. Um, and one of the things that I experience as a film watcher, anytime I, I especially I, uh, anytime I see something uh, produced in South Korea, um, is an aggressive confrontation the degree to which Western filmmakers need to ironicize grief. Hmm. Um, we can't just, we can't do sad. It has to be ironic. It has to be uh, layered with horror. It has to be, um, we have to build depravity on top of it. Um, but just, this is fucking sad. I think it's, this is a good, this is a good moment to point out the, the difficulty of evaluating um, artistic products from another culture and particularly across linguistic barriers. Because there's certainly, and I mean, on the one hand, there's a universality to the language of cinema and to the human experience, which is what allows us to access and enjoy the movie in the first place as people who aren't from the same culture. But on the other hand, um, you know, for example, I don't speak Korean. I only speak half, half a dozen words of Korean. And one of the things that I was quite aware of was how dependent I was for the my experience of the movie on the quality of the subtitles, the quality of translation from Korean into English. Um, that 
you know, and and it wasn't a hundred percent accurate translation. Like for example, where they're talking about miles, I was able to listen in on the Korean version, and he clearly says kilometers. Um, and so and so you're getting an interpretation of the of the movie when in translation. And then beyond that, you also have a bunch of culturally specific callouts that not being from that culture, you might miss. Some of them are obvious. Like for example, um, do you, you guys remember the point where they're talking about where did you boil that egg? It's like right at the beginning of the movie. And it's like the notion that somebody might boil an egg on a train that would never happen in the United States. And it's just depicted as something that like somebody might realistically do in Korea. Um, another thing is for example, the the uh, little girl getting candy repeatedly from complete strangers and nobody just like nobody bats an eye nobody's like you shouldn't you shouldn't talk to strangers kiddo um, you know they're just completely fine being very very familiar with a child that's something that you also wouldn't see as much on the American side of things so um, it puts it puts us as viewers in kind of an interesting place because on the one hand, since we are foreign, we're going to miss a lot of these like social uh, subtexts and subtle cues. And for, for example, one of the reasons why a lot of reviewers say that a lot of the characters in this particular movie are sort of tropey or archetypal is because you see very, very similar characters drawn in a bunch of Korean and Japanese um, dramas, for example. You know, like the tough working class dude, um, you know, the, the high school couple, you know, th these are very stereotypical characters that appear repeatedly across, across different genres and media in those particular cultures. So we miss out on some of that subtext, but at the same time, it lets us appreciate things in a different way because we come to the product without the expectations that those sorts of uh, references would frame otherwise. Does that make sense? I, 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 I don't think the subtitles especially informed my emotional experience of a man who is consciously aware of the process of being converted into a mindless killing machine flashing back to the moment that his daughter is born. Um, in point of fact, that entire sequence played out without a single subtitle to guide us because it wasn't necessary. Um, that's, that's the emotional epicenter, that's the emotional epicenter of the film. Um, uh, when I was, uh, I watched it, uh, today, and I was watching it with, uh, with two of my coworkers, who, between the two of them, have done probably 200 zombie movies in a professional capacity. Like, we're, we're, we're pretty hard beaten, you know? Like, uh, you spill intestines in front of us, and we spill out knock-knock jokes in response. But uh, but we were crying. We were crying during that portion. And it's it's not linguistically dependent. It's not culturally dependent. Um, I'm absolutely open to the idea that there are idiomatic flourishes that we missed. Um, but... But I, I think I think part of what we are confronted by as a Western audience is is the degree to which our role as media makers has inured us to primary narrative that we can't accept um, 
Aristotelian drama, grief, loss, triumph, without the inflections of irony or reversal or, um, or sarcastic subtext, we are no longer able to regard and receive. This is in evidence in this film, but it's in evidence more dramatically uh, when we step outside this subgenre. Um, we're no longer able to receive the primary archetypes of drama and emotionally engage with them without self, uh, without the pride of transcendent self-awareness, without the Deadpool staring at the camera telling us this is really fucking sad. Um, and thus divorcing us from primary emotional engagement with the experience. So to that point, Antonio, do you think that there's a degree of superficiality in those differences? Like it seems like the 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 heart, the here, the right here is is tangible. It's it's a it's it's there's definitely a bridge there between South Korean cinema and, and Westerners watching it. Do you think that do you agree with Ben that maybe those things are are uh, t tend to be fairly simple and not the primary things that that connect between uh, us watching a, a South Korean film? Or do you think that they're actually like extremely important and weightier than Ben is describing? Well, I mean, it's it's like, for example, it, let's compare it to art. Uh, you know, the reason I let out by saying that there are universals that, that convey through and that are accessible to us is precisely because there are universals that convey through and are accessible to us. The, the details provide resolution, perhaps, but they're not the fundamentals, which is why we can sit here and watch the movie and derive, you know, discussion from archetypes, bad archetypes present in the movie and have a good conversation. We wouldn't be able to discuss the movie in coherent terms if there weren't elements sure. of the movie that the primary elements of the movie weren't coherent to us. Yes, but there is a considerable amount of texture that gets filled in, you know, for an artistic comparison. What I would say is, you know, the difference between um, rendering something in like, you know, a Japanese Sumia ink painting versus, let's say, um, you know, uh, you know, a romantic era portrait, like a pre-Raphaelite era portrait. Now, in both of those, you're definitely going to be able to identify human figures. You know, if you depicted, you know, uh, some some uh, historical figure in one medium and then the other, you'd probably be able to recognize both of them as the same individual. But but the the reason why you know his chin is drawn this way in the ink painting and they chose these colors and left these out in the ink painting these are all going to be very highly culturally determined um by by the artistic culture that gave rise to that particular product and so i'm not saying that you can't get educated in and receive a rich background in that sense as somebody who is an outsider to the culture but but you do need to have uh, you, there is a bunch of stuff in any of these uh, artistic works that you're necessarily going to miss if you don't have that kind of um, education in the subtext. Uh, probably less so for this movie than for, you know, something like, let's say, um, The Grave of the Fireflies, for example. Um, but, uh, but again, there's a universal emotional core. That, that is drawn in very simple terms that, that we can all relate to. But there's a bunch of more culturally specific stuff like for example uh but to com by comparison to american horror 
Um, one of our tropes, for example, is the cheerleader, right? In horror movies where the cheerleader has particular qualities. She's blonde. She does this and that. This is what happens to her in the movie, etc. Someone who is not familiar with American culture or the culture of American horror movies might watch a movie with a cheerleader character in it and like the character, but wouldn't necessarily understand the the subtext that goes on when we as Americans see that same character up on the screen. And that's what I said. That's why I say there's a bunch of like Korean drama type characters in this movie who appear in a way to Korean people that they don't appear to us. They appear much fresher to us than they do to Korean folks, because these are people who are staples of Korean media, these particular uh, archetypal characters. I, I, it's probably the, the, the most obvious with the uh, baseball player and his love interest, right? Yeah, that's what it, yeah. And also the uh, the working man, uh, Sanghwa, is also just a classic Korean drama character, like the tough, gruff dude who with a heart of gold. I don't know, man. I'm going straight Alex Jones on this after hearing Ben's interpretation. He may just be a like bisexual billionaire who's cosplay. I mean, there's so many interpretations now. I don't know what to believe. Silk scarf. That is a fucking silk scarf. I know it when I see it. It's I a fancy pants <laughs> And the coat, the coat, I would murder someone for that coat. But I, I have um, to say, I don't know, um, I don't know how much that was a, necessarily only about character. I think it was also for a big reveal. I think that, you know, when you see him, you think he's kind of like, oh, hi. And then he takes his jacket off and he's got all these muscles. He's like, yeah, let's get bad. And you're like, oh, ooh, oh, hello, muscle man. <laughs> he's going to kick some booty. But I don't know. I watch a lot of Korean drama. Our house is filled with Korean uh, media. Uh, my daughter only listens to Korean music and maybe some little trickles of Western music. Um, she's learning Korean. My husband was just in Korea. Uh, we have a Korea-friendly house. And um, I, I didn't really start getting into Korean, Korean media until I watched Old Boy. And then... I was hooked and I had to watch everything. So uh, one of the things I saw online, a, a funny meme, they were talking about the typical, you know, slow build storyline in the Western world. And then they talked about Korean drama and it doesn't do that. It goes like this. <laughs> it's like, oh shit. Okay, cool. Oh shit. Okay, cool. Oh shit. Okay, cool. And that, that element was uh, very much a part of Train to Busan. There were times where you're like, we're, we're chilling. But I know some shit's going to go down in about five seconds. Oh, maybe 10 seconds. I don't know, but it's, it's, something's going to go down again. And that that element of Korean drama was definitely added into the storyline. And that is very well why it might have appeared fresh as a horror film. Because we're used to a slow... Like, these horror movies where it takes an hour before you get a jump scare, you know? And you're you're just like, okay... Another element of symbolism that I thought was very poignant in this movie is the first zombified thing you see isn't a person, it's a deer. And again, the deer in, in East Asian, you know, Confucian cultures has a particular symbolism to it. You know, it's kind of a sacred animal. Like for example, in, in Japan, there's a whole city, Nara, where the deer is like the spirit animal and they, they're just wild deer wandering all over the city. They've been encouraged to be in the city for so long that they're just tame now basically they walk around and try and nuzzle into your backpack to get like rice and crap like that um and so the the, the there's sort of like a a 
recursion in that the first zombified thing that you see is the deer, which is this like symbol of innocence. And then at the end, the thing that brings closure to the story is also like the song of a child, which is this also this like spiritually personified form of innocence in that particular culture. Not that, like I said, there isn't a universal that you can connect there. Oh, and the universal is the goddamn deer. And I'm going to tell you why, Antonio. This is, I have made note of every horror film that starts with a deer being hit in a, by a car. And there are tons of them. For example, The Invitation, Get Out, this film. There's probably 13 others I can, like, there. it's, I, I used to see it as a kind of, I don't know, like foreshadowing, bad shit's about to happen, it's peaceful, we're on a road, we're having a conversation with a couple characters, not in this film, it's just one dude, but, you know, and then, bam, something happens, uh, foreshadowing, there's death that's approaching. I think we may have even talked about this in uh, one of our, our films, I don't remember which one now, but, um, that is something that's in American cinema and clearly something I've seen in uh, in South Korean cinema. So I wonder if it's just a, a I mean, a, a, I'm I'm going a level less deep than you <laughs> by talking about like how it doesn't represent anything other than to me maybe foreshadowing uh, that something bad's about to happen. But I have taken note of every damn deer I've seen killed by a car. I was, was going to mention that I've seen the deer, uh, that the deer stuff. Now, for me, the deer in Train to Busan represented nature's going to take its course and and take mm. over our humanity um that was my interpretation of it i don't know if other people interpreted it that way with get out the deer was very representative of his mother um but i i feel like whenever there's an animal that um you know is it pops up there's always some kind of symbolism right in the stand the crow was you know death and and uh satan coming and all that so uh, you got to pay attention to those damn animals. I was watching some uh, Werner Herzog and, uh, and he has animals in like almost every scene. And I'm like, okay, what is that animal supposed to mean? What is that animal supposed to mean? I have to like start researching animal mythology or something. If a deer dies at the beginning of a film, bad things are about to happen. That's what I've realized. And and you're right, actually, Sherry, and Get Out, that's a really good interpretation of the deer dying. And then in The Invitation, uh, there's actually a scene, I think, where they have to put, uh, I think, where they have to put down the deer or they have to, you have to do something to the deer, and it's almost, and that reflects later on something where a guy's gonna have to do something hard and put down some other shit that I'm not gonna go into. But, but dead deers at the beginning of a film, Americans do it, South Koreans do it. Um, I find that interesting. I have no idea how to segue out of this other than we shouldn't kill deer. That's a bad thing, and it's it's not good. Maybe the presence of the deer at the top of the movie is, um. <laughs> It's not all about us. Mm. This plague is not exclusive to humanity. It is not exclusive to human affairs. Um, it has consequences beyond us as a species. Yeah, this movie was kind of for me a um, like a roller coaster of emotions, which I don't particularly um, expect in a zombie film. Do you know what I mean? Like I I have certain expectations in American zombie films. To be, uh, to know if the a to know if the zombies are walking zombies or running zombies. Are we talking twenty eight days later? Or are we talking Walking Dead? That is the most important thing for me. I need to know that. This was more twenty eight days later, which made me pee my pants a little more than I usually do. Um, so I want to know that, right? But there's there's usually um two or three particular sorts of emotions, maybe two emotions I feel in a zombie film. You know, this one had elation, humor, heart. 
um, grotesque violence. I mean, I don't know if you guys notice. Uh, you, of course you notice. But this film, every bite is just drawn out dramatically. And the actors that played the zombies were fucking phenomenal. Like, you can watch The Walking Dead and see zombies and go, oh, my God, that is definitely an extra that does not want to be there. Like, there's websites that will show you, like, look at this, like, look at this zombie in the corner sitting there on his iPhone and shit. You don't get that in this movie. The zombies in this movie were like well acted and believable in a way that I haven't seen in a lot of zombie films. They were invested in it, it cinematically, I think. I think. I mean, it to me, they just felt a different caliber, a different quality. I think I know why they were so fantastic. Instead of copying from something like 28 Days Later or or World War Z or any of those. They copied from Michael Jackson's thriller. And in in that, they got zombies that were actually dancers. And those motherfuckers can move. They can perform. They know how to move their facial structure in particular ways. And they know how to wear a lot of makeup and make that work for their characters that they're playing on stage. So you get dancers to be zombies. Holy fuck, it's amazing. And it, that's who you steal zombie ideas from is Michael Jackson. And they really did that? There's a, there's a lot of those uh, actors or uh, dancers? That's how they can contort no the way that shit. they did. That was such a fantastic addition to zombie zombies. And I hope other zombie movies start getting dancers to be zombies. Yeah, I mean, do you think that uh, that that's definitely reflects something in the background of the cinema as kind of more of an investment, right? Like, I, I uh, this is one of the films where it was, was really noticeable. Yeah. This is how a lot of other countries make films. Their extras are still on par with their, their heads. They want every character to be huh. paid attention to. And um, you, you see this going back to the beginning of film. There's a lot of uh, you know filmmakers from back in the day. They focused a lot on the extras because they know that those little moments are what make that main character flourish right that's what brings them out they have something to be afraid of or something to fight for and um i feel like when directors pay attention to the extras more it really adds depth to the film and you could see that in this film for sure in fact even the main actors they excellent performances from everyone um the amount of action that they actually did i did watch some behind the scenes stuff of the film they were falling and getting injured, bleeding all over the place, running up and down stairs. I mean, these all the actors were very dedicated to what their art was supposed to be. So um, kudos to all of them. Great performances. Yeah, it's definitely it's definitely a quality zombie film. When when I recommend zombie films to people, I, I give them this just because it's if you if you want to be scared in a zombie film, this is uh, of the zombies particularly. This is. Uh, the, the, a, a great film for that. Um, I have to admit something to you guys. I've seen this film uh, three times. And the first time I did not notice, the second and third time I did, the first time I did not notice the insinuation, well, I guess it's not really an insinuation, but the idea that like um, uh, that the protagonist's company was partially to blame for the, the zombie apocalypse. What did you guys, I, first, I did not catch that the first time I watched it. That's probably one of those like Western idiosyncrasies where I look over because and I don't see the subtitles. I'm looking at my phone. This happened when I watched The Seventh Seal, which is one of the biggest blasphemies that has ever happened to me. I missed an important scene and I had to go back and watch it. I'm like, this is, I, I've committed, this is worse than like blaspheming the Holy Spirit, missing a scene in the seventh seal. But anyway, I, yeah, I, uh, what did you guys think of that? What, what was, that seemed very thick. It seemed like they were laying on a kind of culpability here, kind of thick. What do you, how, did you guys read anything into that? What's that about? 
it felt very artificial. Yeah, it was it was a little it was out of left field a little bit. I I I, I if there was I mean I think that goes to how I started at the beginning, this kind of hierarchy of like malevolence with this starting with the COO. It's like the higher you got in business, uh, the the more culpable you were, the more evil you were. And this is reflected. I I will say that from the other South Korean films I've seen, uh, this is reflected in like the host, where <coughs> the the company was responsible for uh, you know th toxic waste to create the monster. So I've, I. Is there something there? Is there something um, general there that we're hitting in these South Korean films? I see like, it a lot in in the the. I, I, they're kind of silly Korean dramas, I guess you could say. A lot of it can be very funny and silly, but um, whenever they get to a dramatic part, it's pretty laying it on thick. Uh, you know, if you are a part of a business or you're making a lot of money. I mean, I, I'll just put it this way: a lot of people in America will probably watch Korean programming and think that it's extremely uh left-leaning propaganda communist propaganda kind of stuff I, they they tend to make the richy rich riches uh assholes snobs um looking down on others talking down to others and you know the more poor people tend to be sweeter and more loving and more caring about human nature and and fellow humanity and doing nice deeds for each other i mean it's not always that way you still see assholes and in, in, that are poor and nice people that are rich but they do lay it on thick in in their shows a lot of the time uh and it, it probably would bother some western audiences well i mean it's one thing to you know uh, it, there's clearly some sort of a lesson in train to busan something like you know striving blindly towards only financial success has unforeseen consequences and can affect relationships. I I, I get that, right? But um, to go like so far as to say, like it was us. I think that's actually the phone call. It was it was us. We were part of the problem. It seemed like showing your cards a bit much. It, it was no longer kind of um, an issue of subtext, or it was just <laughs> overt. And I felt like if there is a criticism I have for the film, that was it. It, it was just a little too obvious. Well, culturally speaking, it's important to understand that, again, this is one of those, you know, things that might get lost in translation that, that, you know, in these cultures, one of the primary things that people are interested in when something goes wrong is the notion of who's going to take responsibility. The notion of who takes responsibility has a great deal of primacy in the social conversation that occurs in these cultures. And so you're going to see a lot more uh, in movies of, you know, it was this particular dude's decision that caused everything that happened. You'll see this a lot in like older Godzilla movies and stuff as well, um, where where the notion of, of showing the viewer who is supposed to be taking responsibility for what's happening here is much more important than it would be in, in a Western context. And maybe this is, again, more of that like, postmodern, pre-modern mentality thing that uh, that Ben was sort of alluding to earlier, where um, in the West, we've sort of become inured to this uh, this notion that that we can have that kind of thing. He's shaking his head. All right, let's let let's let Ben uh, offer some counterpoint here. That scene in the bathroom was half of one shoot day. They could have been halfway through filming that feature, halfway through filming the movie when the decision was made to make a writing change to put all of the burden of moral culpability on our protagonist. It could have been an afterthought. You're right. It could have been something they decided to add. Who knows, though? It, but it didn't fit. Absolutely. Agreed. 
absolutely. There was no commitment to that idea in the structure of the film. It could have no. been a producer saying he didn't get it. You know, it could have been that has happened in so many films where they're like, "Why, why is he running then? Why, why is he running there?" The audience will get it. They're not stupid. I don't know. You're probably gonna need to explain it, and so they have to have a character explain why the character, the other character's running. You know, <laughs> it it happens, it happens a lot. So it that is possible. And here we see once again the Western preference for arbitrary explanations over an agent causation, like we see in the movie. Well, just just pragmatically, they committed four hours of crew time to that idea out of what, just to my eye, looks like maybe a 39, 45-day shoot. I do not buy it. I'm with Shay. A producer spoke up. It's our conspiracy theory. <laughs> A producer, no, I'm with you, sister. I'm with you. A producer spoke up and said, we need to get this theme in there. And that was the bare minimum level of commitment necessary to deliver it. This is reminiscent of the scene in Event Horizon where they they spent like a, the bulk of their budget on like the opening orbital scene it's like so it's like it's like we're trying really hard at this one thing and it comes through way too clear to the audience in very different ways one budgetary and one i don't know ethical philosophical however you want to put it uh but it did come out of left field it definitely came out of left field um to that to that note did you guys notice that when the zombie apocalypse is unfolding and everyone on the train is noticing the president is talking about it on the screen, but nobody is paying attention and listening to what he says. And they are all on YouTube and looking at their phone and they are not listening. And there is a distinction between what this politician is saying is happening about the zombie apocalypse. It is, it's contained, it's a riot, all of this, and everyone is loading up YouTube and getting the truth. I felt that was very purposeful as well. I, I, I don't know enough about South Korean politics to comment, but maybe you guys do. Did you guys notice how obvious that was? I did. Yes, I absolutely did. And in fact, my note for it, for that particular scene here says, cynicism toward government response. In the <laughs> um, See, it crosses barriers. Exactly. Well, <laughs> and, and to some extent, to some extent, I think it's a universal realization in the information age that that governments yeah. sort of curate the information that, that sources of authority curate the, the information they put out, that they're looking to spin it in a way that's favorable to them, etc. And so we're looking for, you know, what the person on the street uploaded that's a raw, unedited take where we can form our own opinion instead of getting it filtered through the official official channels. To some extent, it, that's that's a universality. Now, with regard to South Korean politics specifically, South Korean politics specifically are quite corrupt. And recently, the uh, president was ousted in a massive corruption scandal that involved like a psychic and like all kinds of weird stuff. I encourage if you have any interest in like political scandals, I encourage you to look up the history of the last administration or two in, in South Korea, because some really crazy stuff has gone on in the past couple of years um, that has definitely informed 
the lackadaisical attitude toward the ability of the state to keep us safe that you see in this movie. I would love as part of like the legitimate corruption scandal that some like epidemiological thing comes out that they were trying to manufacture a zombie apocalypse in South Korea. I'd be so happy. And I don't know if that's just because of this film or I have that same sort of that same sort of desire for like a tabula rasa clean slate. I hope the zombie apocalypse happens. I really don't know. The reason why this film could have gone on forever and it was so good is because it had this magical thing called character development, (laughs) (laughs) which is lost on a lot of fucking people nowadays. But the characters were fascinating and interesting and they all developed and grew. You felt like you knew them by the end of the film. They were close to you. They were friends of yours. You know, you, you recognized your family and friends in the characters. That's what made it so powerful when things happened. You cared when the people died. And it didn't matter if they were young, you know, high schoolers or two old lady sisters. You still felt like you were connected and empathized with them on a level that made you cry, which I, I've cried multiple times to this film now. I don't even, I don't cry to movies anymore. I am numb to everything. I watch Lars Van Trier and I laugh when I see the <laughs> coming blood scene. So I'm a sick fuck about a lot of stuff, but that, yes, that yes, movie always yep. gets me crying. And I'm like, you know, when you hear a little girl, you know, begging her father not to go away from her. I mean, it's powerful stuff. This is powerful writing, powerful characters. Well, what does that say about it? What does that say about American horror? I mean, that's really interesting to me. You know, uh, one of the earliest horror films that I felt there was character development that that lasted for me, and this is going to sound great, do not judge me for what I'm about to say, is uh, Jeepers Creepers, which isn't like a great film, but it's one in which I I distinctly remember the brother-sister relationship. I don't know if you guys have seen this, but it's one of the first horror films that I watched that I can distinctly recall caring like a lot about the characters. Cause the first, I don't know, 15 minutes is them of the, of the film is just them jabbing each other like brothers and sisters do and bullshitting and making fun of each other. And I thought this is a horror film. Like she should be in a bra and he should be a jock and they should be dying now. But you know what I mean? Like, and, and, um, is that, is that a, is that a a critique of Western horror? I mean, it must be a critique of Western horror to not, I don't think it is anymore because I think they're starting to learn. And this happened with, uh, the Western, um, there was the Western started out as a B movie. Only kids watched it. Sound familiar with horror. Um, and then they were like, Oh, if we add some heart and maybe a little bit of a feminine touch, you know, maybe this could be uh, some big some big money. Maybe put it in a good setting. Um, you know, actually care about the special effects a little bit more, and and it might be good. And if you look at Train to Busan, you have um, I don't know if you guys noticed this, but that train was not a real train. It was a box in a building. It had green screens on the windows. That I did not fucking know. It was such fantastic special effects they really cared about every element of it and when you put that kind of care into the characters into the story into the special effects it's going to be good you know and i think i think horror is starting to get down and do that get out was a fantastic film and people are starting to notice it and i'm i'm hoping that horror is starting to give it give its heart and and care about what it looks like a little bit more so it gets out of that b-movie just for little boys, uh, you know, trope that it's been stuck in forever. 
Now, let me be a little provocative here. So, okay. so you right. know, you've been describing your your emotional reactions to the characters in this movie, and I agree that the that the characters in this movie are well acted. I think they're well realized. I think they they play emotionally powerful notes that that resonate with who we are as people um, on a level that transcends you know culture, that transcends language. Um, but and here's the but is I don't think that any of the characters in this movie have an actual character development in the sense of having a character arc other than the protagonist particularly. In other words, the protagonist's character actually develops from point A to point B. He starts out by being, you know, the selfish guy who tells the daughter, you know, look out for yourself. And he ends by being all self-sacrificial and so on and so forth. But like, for example, um, uh, Sang Hua, the working class dude, um, how does his character develop over the course of the film? He begins as like this plucky kind of sarcastic dude who is pitching in for other people and sort of sacrificing himself or risking himself for the good of others. And that's exactly how his arc concludes. He doesn't, he hasn't reached any new realization. He, he has not uh, advanced as a character. So it's a good characterization but it's a character that doesn't necessarily develop. And I think, and like, for example, the, the daughter, she doesn't develop either. She hasn't acquired some kind of courage by the end that she didn't have at the beginning. The, the only development is that since her father gave himself for her, now she feels like he's with her and has the confidence to sing. So I guess you could say that, that, that she has sort of a character development arc. But other than those two, pretty much everybody else in the movie remains the same person at the finale of their characterization that they were at the beginning. Bank manager is the same. Pregnant woman's the same. Uh, baseball player dude is the same. Um, train conductor is the same. Uh, they're all, they're, they, they don't change as people. They're not challenged as people other than perhaps the two protagonists. Um, I would say that the, the buff guy character, maybe he didn't change but he did change. He he peeled off a layer and became something else halfway through the film. You thought he was the the funny character with the fancy outfit, and then he became Billy Badass with tape around his wrist. You know, um, it, maybe that wasn't necessarily that he changed internally, but we don't know. We don't know who he was beforehand. We don't know if he decided to become Billy Badass at that moment because he needed to, or if he's always been a badass. Um, he could just be a gym rat who decided, hey, my offspring must live and now i'm going to be a, a badass um so we don't know necessarily but i felt like that was a huge change in his character because i was not expecting it at all um and as far as the the pregnant woman she was very <laughs> at the beginning and then she was kind of like all right we got to do this we got to do this and became a lot more aware as far as the high schoolers, I feel like they were very much in their own world, as most high schoolers are, you know, enjoying life. And then they realized we love each other. This sucks. We have to fight. Oh, my gosh, our friends are dead. Like they they went through a change of the realities of suck in a matter of seconds. So, so, so is that, though, is that like an immediate change because of the circumstances or like a legitimate developed arc in their who they are? As I don't think it's a developed arc, but, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, yeah. there was a change in character in all of them. And I think that adds layers to the people they're playing. And I think that makes something for me. Uh, I was thinking of. Um, I was watching a really bad Nicolas Cage movie, OK, 
really, really yeah, they're, bad. They're one. all bad. They're all bad. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I was watching a really bad one. And um, at one scene, there's all this fucking shit going on. And he's just standing in a boat in the middle of nowhere. There's no wind. He's not reacting to anything. It's, it's as if this world of chaos around him doesn't affect him because he's Nicolas Cage. And it's, it's so off-putting, you know? When a character is presented with something, they should react and change accordingly to the stuff around them. And when they don't, it comes across as really fucking weird and, and uncomfortable. So um, maybe it wasn't a huge character arc on every character, but I feel like every single person changed due to the circumstances and became something else uh, a different person because of the circumstances. To Shara's point, Antonio, let's 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 not forget that I I I look, I'm going to be now I'm going to be provocative. I think that the largest change was the COO because the COO up until this point was a businessman, probably stepped on a few people's toes, did things he shouldn't have done. But I guarantee it seems to me that prior to the zombie apocalypse, he pushed people out into zombies to be killed. I mean, he murdered. Do, are we going to say that he he murdered before? That seems like a hell of a change. He in cold blood murdered. Now, that's not like a long two-hour developmental arc, but it's certainly a radical change of one's posture to go from being a dick to being a murdering dick. That sounded weird. To being evil, you know? I mean, uh, I, I think you could just characterize that both under just the rubric of sociopathy. You know, he started mm -hmm. the movie not giving a fuck about other people. And then that's exactly how you saw him respond to everybody during the movie. There wasn't any point at which he like questions himself and went, wow, if I kill this dude, I'm not going to be able to go back to being sure. a CEO the same way. You know what I mean? That's it's a good point. Self, he starts out being a selfish asshole and then he is just a selfish asshole to everyone through the entire movie. So to you, he's just given more of an ample opportunity to to, to highlight his assholery in the yes, zombie apocalypse. He's a good characterization, but he doesn't yeah. have a character arc per se. You know, okay. he's, right. just, he's just characterized. But, sure. but interestingly, one of the things that I thought would have been an, a neat direction for the movie to take and, and an interesting moral question for the movie to ask is I would have liked him to survive. Ah. That so, would have been so antithetical to everything in the movie, like all the values being portrayed. That would have been so sad. Oh, God, I don't know what to think about that movie if that's how it would have ended. That would have ruined me. I would have been so bothered. But this is – um. so when I was watching a, an interview of the people who create The Walking Dead, uh, the creators say they, they are trying to make these characters that pretty much are sociopaths that uh, tend to move to a place of power – uh, in, in this apocalyptic world, right? Um, but no matter what, they try to write it so that those guys die, like the Negans of the world. They, they're supposed to die, and the people that still hold on to their humanity don't become uh, zombies. The, the sociopaths will become zombies, and these good guys will never become zombies. It, I feel like they fail at that all the time. I feel like Train to Busan held to those values way fucking better he showed that he was already inhuman and became inhuman and it, that is so much better written but yeah if he would have lived that would have added a, a negan-esque element to it that would have made people probably uncomfortable watching so it would have been interesting. He like inoculates himself at the end like it's actually him that's done it he has like the thing that he injects himself with you know, it's like I am legend too, but like the COO is the evil, like protagonist. All right, you're making me go down trains of thought that I shouldn't be going down. Um, 
trains to busan yeah. Tra trains of thought oh there's the pun i didn't have a pun we got a pun Bam. oh now you can you can redo your intro now okay so now <laughs> i'm going to introduce a segment called say something feminist what feminist thing can we say about this film free reign go for it women have better ethics in this movie than <laughs> That's a really good point, actually. There's no one more morally yeah. virtuous in this movie than I think Sue Ann. Well, I mean, all the women are um, caring of others, they're very empathetic. Uh, sure. they're, there's something to be treasured, something to be saved. Um, and when they do end up dying, they do so in a, a very dignified way. Um, you know, I, I think of the older sisters. Well, oh, gosh, you know, the, the sacrifice there that she sees that her sister's still alive. Oh, my gosh, powerful moments, right? But um are they sisters were they sisters yes yes okay okay um but yeah it, there's some really powerful female moments in it but i mean the power of woman is that she makes babies and that is shown in the end we have to save the children we have to save the women who make babies they are our future without them there is no future there's no way that we can go on living and those are the ones that need to survive and I know a lot of people probably get pissed off about that element of the story, but if we want humanity to keep going, we need women. So <laughs> at least right now, maybe science will get to a point where we're unnecessary. Who fucking knows? MGTOW guys on YouTube are like, yeah, let's get there. Let's do it. Yeah. Now let's offer some counterpoint on, on the feminist uh, observations here. So let, let's, let's look for stereotypical masculinity or particularly as expressed within these cultures. It, so, and it was right here where we got our dislikes. I'm going to call it. It's right here. Right now is the moment. Go for <laughs> it. <laughs> right, so, so first off, we have the portrayal of the portrayal of women and children as morally superior to men is a very stereotypical, stereotypically chivalrous masculine thing. You know, they are they're weaker. They are gentler. They they are more nurturing. They have a better ethical center than than the hard, you know, rigid, um, uh, you know, violent uh, masculinity. Um, and uh, let's see what what else. What other stuff comes to mind? Um, it's the awe factor. Aw. Yeah. Yeah. Um, women women repeatedly are shown getting men in trouble. So like you know the 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 old lady is the one who opens up the car and lets everybody in to get killed. And then in the end, um, the cheerleader, when the cheerleader uh, goes down, it's her going down that causes the baseball bat kid to like give up and go, oh, well, time to die. Um, you know, which is again, that, that sort of uh, female, um, you know, Pandora trope uh, that you'll see in a lot of narratives. Um, when it's time to get real and go rescue people, they don't recruit a woman, they recruit three dudes. Now, of course, you know, the, the, the misogynist counter argument is gonna be, well, men are bigger and stronger. So in realistic situations, that's exactly how that would go. And that may be true, but we're in a narrative situation here. We're not filming a zombie documentary. I you love know. how you can navigate all avenues of the responses on each of these sides. That's the best part of this, I want you to know. I'm, I'm totally digging this. That's the lawyer in me. <laughs> so, so yeah. So, so, you know, men are the ones who do the physical stuff in this, in this particular movie. Um, and they don't necessarily always have to be like, for example, there's, there's that tool that's shown being able to break the window. You could have had a woman doing that, but it's a dude because it's just implied that a dude is going to bring the necessary force to 
that particular situation. So while while I do think that there are some feminist uh, themes that you can sort of tease out in the movie, I think ultimately, um, as far as the the sexual culture of this movie, it very much reinforces the contemporary status quo in South Korea. Well, I mean, you have to also remember the female characters are old ladies, children, pregnant women, and a teenage girl who is, you know, hasn't even really done anything that would make her like you know big and strong like join the military or anything oh and at the end um it's presumed that the dude who's like what is it what what is what is the protagonist what's his actual job it's like middle management of some kind like what is fund fund manager manager. yeah he's a fund manager the fund manager tells the woman how to work the locomotive because of course the man is going to know how to work the locomotive better than the woman despite the fact that he's a fun that's manager. actually that's actually probably the best example that's i think that's actually the be- that's the best argument you made so far i think that yeah that's the most obvious one uh the fact that the two women at the end weren't shot in the head i was waiting for that i mean why you know why they didn't get shot in the head because they were women that's not true i made that up but you know <laughs> No, I uh, I do find it interesting that he he taught her how to drive the train, considering she was the one who came up with the, hey, if we stick some fucking newspapers on this window here, those motherfuckers calm the fuck mm-hmm. down. She's the smart one. She was the one using her brain originally, and now he's like going to mansplain the train. <laughs> Let that be a lesson, Mr. Mikto. Let that be a lesson. Even in the zombie apocalypse, men will still explain things to women. Here is how you, here is how you drive a train, even though I have no idea what the fuck I'm doing. You know, we we are going to get so much hate if you we are. We are. Do you guys have anything else you want to add before we close up shop? I'm going to rate this this film very highly. I want you know, I'm I'm just forewarning you guys that this is one of my higher rated films. And I don't think I would have said that after uh, if I wouldn't have watched it a third time. I I literally, like I said, I, I, I missed things in the first one, caught them all in the second time. But the third one. I don't know, maybe after watching Walking Dead for 95 seasons, you know, just, well, I don't know. It made it like, thank you, Walking Dead, for giving the train to Busan a much higher rating because of your show at this point. I, I actually do really like The Walking Dead, but this this had an aesthetic difference to it that 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 wasn't monotonous was more about the zombies more about the more about the fear more about the connection the the limited time you have in the apocalypse to get shit right with your friends with your family i don't know um anyway do you guys have anything else you want to add i'm I'm, i want to start my review uh my review first and then let you guys go after do you guys have anything else you want to add you guys good okay so um how do we, you know what? One of the things that we do in this podcast very poorly, and I, I just have this feeling we're going to keep doing it poorly, is we change our rating system <laughs> for films. We used to do like five stars, and then we did nine out of 10. So, you know what? I'm just going to go with it. We're just going to do gummy bears. Like, I'm going to hand you all gummy bears, and we're going to do like 10 out of 10 gummy bears. Like, what we're going to make this needlessly complicated. Um, so, like, uh, on a scale of one to 10, in terms of how much this film scared me, and how I would rate it in terms of the quality, uniqueness, the, the the novelty, right? Two different scores. This film actually scared me quite a bit at different instances. And they weren't necessarily the scenes of immense violence like you would necessarily see here in the West. But they were scenes of tension. This was a tense film. One of the things we didn't really underscore in the way I thought that was sufficient is it's tense. A lot of South Korean, the South Korean films that I've seen, almost all of them, even, even Old Boy, like just tense as shit a perfect burn a slow burn to a point where i'm like oh man i know i don't do not get in that train station stop do not go to that train station that feeling where you 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 just freeze frame it and keep it 
I felt a lot in this movie, and I dug that it's it was unique. That's kind of sad to me that it was unique. To be honest with you, it, it hadn't felt that way in a really long time. You know, maybe maybe since Dawn of the Dead. I don't. I actually felt it more in this film than Dawn of the Dead. To be honest with you, but it was great to be refreshed in the zombie genre in the in the zombie world. And I've realized in this podcast that part of it may have actually been uh, with some of the cultural differences between the way I look at the things I'm looking for in a film. And South Korean cinema, but I'm I I that's all the more reason for me to dig it. Like the fact that that made it refreshing makes me want to watch more South Korean films, which is cool. Like it's it's cool to learn new things. Hear that YouTube comments section? It's cool to empathize, learn new things. Anyway, I'm clearly working out my own shit with uh, with the growing channel here, but um, yeah, I love I love this film. Um, when people say what's a good zombie film, I say. Uh, I trained to Busan in Pontypool and I give him a little bit of a caveat with Pontypool, a little bit of a, not really a zombie film, but a zombie film. You know, I give him those two as very different sorts of zombie films, something just completely different. Um, so I, in terms of the fear factor, I'd give this movie, you know, I give this movie a seven out of 10. Uh, zombie films don't give me the, it, this is definitely a visceral film in a lot of ways, but it doesn't give me, I, I don't end this film and go and wake up the next morning and go, ah, God, that really, there's something that really bothered me. I'm thinking about a particular thing, right? The the films that scare me are the ones that linger, that last, that give me concepts that bother me a couple days later. Event Horizon is a great example. Event Horizon has never left me, right? Train to Busan will leave me, but aesthetically, it was just an absolutely beautiful film. So in terms of scaring me, seven out of 10. In terms of the aesthetics, the quality of the cinema, um, it, you know, all of that, I'd, I'd give it a nine out of 10. I mean, it, it is unique for me, uh, to me, as someone who's watched many zombie films. It gave me a roller coaster of emotions, which is very strange for a zombie film. I cried, I laughed, and I was scared shitless. That is a great roller coaster. Um, so this is uh, one of the best zombie films I've ever seen. I watched this film most recently with three other people who uh, between the three of us, we probably have a hundred zombie films under our belt. And we cried like children watching this movie. And that is the highest commendation I can give it. This should feel awful. The end of the world should feel awful. The disillusion of family relations should feel awful. And Train to Busan in a context when we are entirely too accustomed to engaging the zombie genre as a power fantasy, did a fantastic job of confronting us with the reality that the end of the world, whether we survive it or not, whether we wind up on top or not, whether we bungee cord a chainsaw to a lawnmower and feel like a badass thereby or not, we should feel really fucking awful about all that was lost along the way. Train to Busan does an amazing job of taking us there and asking us what was really valuable in the first place, what we were hoping to preserve through the end of the apocalypse. Beautiful. Beautiful. It's way up there for me because uh, one of my favorite books, growing up that I read so many times it obliterated into pieces and turned to dust uh, was The Stand by Stephen King. And I think there's so much to be said about a story where you have all these characters that are going to be affected by the end of the world and then they have to try to build up something when everyone's dead. 
And um, this one is way up there, though. I Like, The Stand has always been the story. And then this one has... It's it's really close. It's really close to the stand. And the, I think the main reason why is when I watch the film, and you know how when you watch films with people around you, that can affect you. I watched the film with my teenage daughter. And near the end of the film, her and her best friend were jumping up on and down on the couch. Oh my gosh, oh my gosh, no, no, no. Freaking out, screaming at the television screen. And then when the end came and the little girl is screaming, they collapsed on the couch, convulsing, crying, you know, the snot, like just a absolute sadness seeping out of my daughter. And I realized I raised her to be empathetic, loving, to care about her family, to care about humanity, to care about others. I, I felt like I did something right because she could cry and she could feel and she could be close to humanity. And that means that film has... It, it, it's it's broken down barriers for most people, right? Because I hear all different kinds of people say they've cried from this film. So I don't know. I think it's a great, great film. Uh, one of my favorites, um, not just horror, just films in and of itself. Um, I'll give it nine baseball bats in a window with newspaper on it. <laughs> well, let's see. How, how to evaluate this kind of movie. Um, I guess uh, in terms of, you know, in terms of horror, as I've told the the uh hosts and listeners of this podcast before um for me it's not so much with something scary as is something disquieting is there something that stuck with me after the fact that 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 made me revisit the horrific elements and think to myself like oh man you know um and i think that this succeeds on that level it it, it does a very good job of one of the primary thing one of the primary issues with zombie movies is the inherent sort of unbelievability of the premise um, and this one made the premise more convincing by, by showing the zombies as so dynamic, um, and also the environment as so contained. Um, and so it did, did a good idea, a good job of, of hurdling a lot of those believability, um, uh, stumbling blocks that, that afflict other zombie movies. Um, so it was, it, it succeeded in being disquieting without actually descending into torture porn, which is something that a lot of uh, horror movies and a lot of South Korean horror movies in particular uh, have a danger of doing. Um, and so I think that it it did a very good job. It was a very effective horror movie in that regard. So like maybe eight out of 10 on the efficiency of its, uh, of the, it, the delivery of its horror. As an actual movie product, um, the stuff that I liked were, were, I thought it was visually good, um, I thought the performances were good. I thought the editing was good. Um, the the characterizations were solid. The the special effects were all excellent. You know, the zombies were all totally believable. There wasn't anybody who looked like they were wearing rubber as opposed to actual, you know, scarified human flesh. Um, so the visuals were good. The the uh, soundtrack was good. It was not super intrusive while still being very dramatic. Um, the things I didn't like, there was there were some sillinesses that you know ultimately end up being concessions to the zombie genre, like you know the necktie barrier and some other some other stuff like that. Um, typical sort of this typical sort of silliness that attends uh, uh, sort of chase oriented horror movies. Um, 
but I thought it was I thought it was solid overall. Um, not not groundbreaking as far as you know making me reevaluate the way I look at humanity or the way I look at cinema or what have you. But but a very good entry in its particular genres, and I use that in the plural because it's not just a straight up horror movie. It's not just a straight up zombie flick. It 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 crosses a couple genres. It's a little bit of a Korean drama. It's a little bit of a post-apocalypse. It's a little bit of a straight up zombie movie. Uh, there's definitely an homage, uh, if that's uh, a strong enough term, to Snowpiercer um, and so on. So overall, I think the movie as a movie is probably about a seven out of 10. Um, as far as an efficient mechanism for horror delivery, eight out of 10. Yeah, this was a... Um... This was, this was, I think we've done, this is our second zombie film. So we did this and Pawnee Pool, both rated very highly. Um, so I, I'm glad we did this session. Uh, if you guys like this, um, especially the feminist segment, which we are now officially adding to every fucking video we make, come check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Uh, we're pretty active there for the most part. I'm always posting like really leftist feminist propaganda for the most part. If you want to interact with that sort of... Con Come at me. It'd be fun to talk. So, uh, yeah, check us out. I, I think our next session we're doing is um, our next session. Didn't even mean for this to happen. Is session nine, uh, the film session nine. So check us out. I literally walked into that. Didn't even did not. I did not plan for that. I need to not plan my puns. I think that's the that's the key. Anyway, so check us uh, check us out the, la uh, the for our next session. Uh, if you liked what you saw here, leave us a like. Um, if you disagree with anything we said, tell us why. Uh, don't just leave an assertion. Tell us why you think that. We would love to argue with you. We like to argue here, clearly. Uh, so uh, leave us a comment. Hope you enjoyed the, the uh, review of Train to Busan, and we will see you next time for Session 9. Thanks for watching.